Pod Pals, and welcome back to Best Girl Grip, the podcast that navigates the film industry through the lens of the women doing just that. I am your host, Nicole Davis. I'm going to keep this intro brief because I have to admit I'm doing this early in the morning, such as the life of a side hustle, and I'm kind of still waking up. But I have to say, re-listening to this conversation you're about to hear was very enlivening and focusing, so I'm excited for you and the journey you're about to go on. My guest is Melanie Hoyes, who is an industry inclusion executive at the BFI, where she deputises for the head of inclusion to advocate for equity and access in the film industry. She joined the BFI in 2016 as a researcher working on a project to acquire diversity data about gender and ethnicity for the BFI filmography, telling stories about UK film history using data from the archive. Melanie continues to use data and research in order to monitor and inform improved policy and practice at the BFI and the UK film industry in general. Uh, And if you think, oh my god, no, this is all about data, this sounds really boring, let me tune out. Don't, please stay, it's a really kind of enthralling and encompassing conversation. Uh, We go beyond the data um, in in lots of different ways. We talk about Melanie's start in academia, her decision not to finish a PhD, her path to the BFI and her work and and the work that she's doing to advocate for and instill inclusion, the value of emotional intelligence at work, why the concept of a career ladder is dangerous, how data can galvanise informed, targeted change, and how she stays motivated to keep working towards that change. As I said, I really enjoyed this conversation. I found it very validating, actually. So wherever you are and whatever time of day you're listening to it, I hope it gives you a little boost. This is episode 81 of Best Girl Grip. Where I always like usually like to start these is just getting a sense of where you went to university. But actually, I know that you you went to Warwick and you did film and literature because I did the very same degree, which is really cool, actually. And I think a podcast first. Um, I don't think I've encountered anyone before that did that. So I'm wondering what interested you about studying there and what did you get from doing that particular degree? Love to run into film lit Warwick alumni because it's such a small bunch of people. Mm. But amazingly, I bump into people quite often. Yeah, I mean, I think. Uh, as as you will find as we go through this recording, uh, I don't plan much and my university degree uh, was no different really in that I was looking at, I really liked literature and uh, really liked film and lo and behold there was a course called film and literature at Warwick and I kind of applied to a few other places and didn't get in but did get into Warwick but actually loved it and it really sort of formed what I ended up doing and what I was interested Mm. in and just was a really lovely meeting of all the things that I found interested in and a way of looking at film that I think I'd already I'd already started doing but it just sort of validated Mm. that and it was the really great kind of baptism of fire into the the canon and you know and criticism and textual analysis and it was it was great fun and I loved it. And what particularly were you interested in that it kind of consolidated was it the the academia element or was there something specifically in you know within the film world that kind of got you interested in it was a bit of both I think I'd always you know been a bit of a geek in that I'd I'd watch films and wouldn't I would be looking at the lighting or I'd be thinking about the sound or Mm. about the representation and so I think it allowed me to just think about those things um, and the things that I was thinking about in the world through the through the medium of film in a way that I think I'd already 
started to do, always trying to locate myself as well. I think in the things that I was watching and in popular culture and TVs, real mm. like TV um, head as well. Um, so I think it started to consolidate that thinking through a medium that I just really enjoyed and and loved visually and also started to get me thinking about academia as a career which I'd never really thought of or not or sort of not really realized that that was a thing that I could do was teach other people about stuff mm. I really enjoyed so it got me thinking about that too. Well that's a good point because you um you went on to do a master's and I'm wondering if that was like a decision that just came from you or if you maybe you were kind of um, encouraged to go down that route you know how did you come to make that decision? Yeah, I think it was, I think it was my decision. I I just felt like I wasn't done yet. Uh, and w- while I was doing my bachelor's degree at Warwick, I just sort of had a bit of a epiphany about teaching and I loved our course so much and I loved all our tutors. We just, you know, have some amazing minds in that course. And I felt like that was something that I wanted to do I wanted to teach I wanted to follow a career in academia at that time it's obviously not what happened <laughs> so I, I the master's was the kind of the next step in that really to, to thinking about whether that was what I really wanted to do so I, I hunted hunted one down and, and uh, did it part-time that was what, all I could afford to do was to do it part-time and did that at Birkbeck where they do a lot of evening classes and that kind of thing so I was able to sort of work and um, study at the same time and, and continue what I'd learned at Warwick. You went on to teach at Sussex University and I'm wondering you know what that comparison or what that transition was like going from student to then teacher was it you know all it was cracked up to be was it what you expected it would be? So after my master's I went on to do a PhD which I was also doing part-time because I mm. needed to work I didn't get funding so I was having to work full-time at UCL and then um, yeah so then as part of my PhD I became an associate tutor and was teaching and to be honest it was really tricky it was really hard I think anybody I uh, hats off to anybody who does a PhD and especially if they do it part-time because it was nigh on impossible to be working full-time in London and teaching and um, trying to study down in Sussex Mm. Um, and I really enjoyed the teaching element actually I I really loved seeing that interest sparked in my students Um, and I sort of moved on to a lot of what I was teaching was television and popular culture, which is really great and sort of really current. Um, so I loved that element of it. But the PhD itself, I found really tricky. I realised I'm not a lonely worker. <laughs> um, I do not like getting stuck in my own thoughts. Um, so and just working full time as well was kind of, yeah, it was just nigh on impossible. So that was that was a tricky few years of trying to navigate what I had come out of my bachelor's degree wanting to do and then really thinking about whether that was what I wanted to do and I think in the time I was there as well academia as a place had changed quite a bit they started charging you know it was becoming a very different landscape and I wasn't sure whether it was for me so I came to the decision to not finish my PhD and not do that after about seven years of battling away at that so I I didn't finish that study and I didn't teach in that way again. Was that a difficult choice you know having gone down a certain road to then kind of undo the stitches in a way? 
It wasn't, it wasn't. Like it felt like a really difficult choice at the time, but I'd, mm. I'd had a bereavement. My dad passed away about nine years ago mm. and it really, that really brings things into focus. You know, I was kind of sat around going, what, what exactly am I doing with my life? Am I happy? I think I just, I, my refrain was kind of like, after all my PhD, I'll be really happy. But right now I'm just like sobbing into my pillow at night. <laughs> and so I think on one hand, it was, it felt really difficult at the time because it felt like a failure. But if I look back on it now, I I mean, it wasn't like, what was I thinking? I was just a mess. So it was absolutely the right decision. And I was trying to fulfill something that I'd thought about doing 10 years previously and realised that I'd moved on, actually. But yeah, at the time, it felt quite difficult. I thought, how am I ever going to be able to say that I failed to complete a PhD? But I have sort of no qualms about saying that now. And also, I guess, like, even though you didn't get the qualification, like, it doesn't undo the learning itself. You know, you still put in the time, you still, you know, did all those hours. So, you know, you're, you're richer because of that experience, I guess, anyway. Absolutely. I, I feel as though all the skills that I learned, all the amazing people I've met during that career and, mm-hmm. um, you know, the things that I learned were incredibly important even in terms of life lessons even in terms of just what I should and shouldn't be doing or what I should should and shouldn't spend sort of 10 years of my life doing without questioning myself (laughs) at some point and checking in whether that's okay so I think yeah absolutely in terms of the experience and and what it brings to my current career is still immensely valuable even Mm. though I don't have doctor before my name And did you come away from that knowing what you wanted to then go into or was it still at a stage of kind of trying to figure it out? I absolutely did not know what I wanted to go into. I think I've always wanted to do what I enjoyed or do something that I enjoyed that I was passionate about. I wanted it to have some sense of helping people. So the things I really enjoyed about teaching were tutorials and one-to-ones and I guess the kind of mentoring element or helping people problem solve and that kind of thing so yeah I had no sense I was working in a library and had been throughout my master's and PhD so I'd I've always enjoyed kind of higher education and thought that was really important but no I mean I I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up so that hasn't hasn't really changed. It's nice that it's uh, I guess an evolving question though and I'm wondering well yeah if you could describe your path to the BFI which is kind of where you are now but obviously in a different role how did you come to work there? Yeah again kind of you know fate took me uh so I'd just finished well not just I'd probably spent a couple of years after deciding not to do my PhD and working in the library and thinking about what I wanted to do next and whether that was what I wanted to do next or what other opportunities there might be and um I'd been a member of the BFI for a long time since I was studying at, you know, we, we would read Sight and Sound in our bachelor's degree as kind of the Bible. And then in for my MA uh, that I did, that was affiliated with the BFI. So we had okay. membership and access to the library. So I'd always been sort of in its aura uh, and had my eye on the jobs that were available there as a, as a space that sort of brought together all of the things that I was interested in and mm. good at, I guess, in terms of education and academia and, you know, libraries and collections and then research and industry. And I saw this job come up that was for a researcher and it was about diversity data. And I kind of thought, hey, representation, that's always what I was really interested in. So I kind of went for it, assuming I wouldn't get it and did. 
So that was in 2016 and I got a role that was looking at the representation of blackness on screen in UK films. So specifically kind of looking at black actors and um, what films they were in, how many actors were working, uh, how much they got to be lead roles or supporting roles, um, what genres they appeared in and really Mm. trying to sort of answer some questions around um, a season that we had at the time called Black Star that was celebrating black stardom in film. And I remember at the time, I think these questions came up because the struggle to find a sort of British black star that wasn't working in America uh, was difficult Mm. or not as easy as maybe the names that we were trying to whittle down for our American counterparts. So we realised we couldn't do that season without thinking about these questions of diversity and inclusion and whether people were why they were leaving to work in the states what was it about our industry that was keeping people out and using data to be able to answer some of those questions so that was the research Mm. project that I that I came on board to do. Can you talk a little bit about what that was intended to kind of inform you know was there a broader goal that the BFI wanted to achieve and you know that's why they they brought you on to do that research? I think at the time it was specifically for the season, but it inevitably, and what I found was having done that research that I was increasingly getting asked to talk about the research and then talk about what we were doing as an institution to answer some of those questions. So the BFI is a kind of strange beast because it does a, lots of different things in different places. And so my research was in archive but actually what the research was talking to is industry and our, our sort of remit as a public funder and our remit as kind of leading body for film or, or, or an institute that people sort of look to for mm. advice around this and that's how I ended up working in diversity and inclusion because the two couldn't be extricated from each other you couldn't talk about one without speaking about the other and so I became involved with and spoke a lot to our head of inclusion to kind of answer some of these questions and and figure out how to talk about them and find out what we were doing and um, ultimately ended up working with her which is where I've been for the last couple of years. Well that's a perfect segue so as you say your current role is as industry inclusion executive can you talk a bit about what your remit in that role is you know what are you doing on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, so ultimately I deputise for our head of inclusion. So up until very recently, it's just been, um, it's been the two of us for a little while. We've had sort of people come and go. It's been the two of us in the main for the last two years and we've just hired a couple who doubled our team, which feels like incredibly luxurious. <laughs> um, but yeah, so my, my role is really to deputise for her. Our remit has been external in the main so everything when I joined in my job description was to do with our interaction with industry and trying to make industry as inclusive as possible um, on and off screen so trying to improve representation Mm -hmm. through leading by example through the policies that we have um, kind of joining together how we talk about diversity and inclusion language how we collect data how we use data to tell the stories that need to be addressed in this space so all sorts of things really and a lot of it is kind of consultation internally and externally about all of those things and how Mm. we talk about these things and uh, what the issues are and what we need to be focusing on also looking at our main policies so things like the diversity standards um our bullying and harassment guidelines and principles all of these things kind of just trying to think about how and if they best serve 
us as a funder but also the industry to become more inclusive and, and kind of create opportunity where it's it's mm. needed and in my role I specifically am interested because I started in data in the ways in which that opens up conversations it allows you to talk about things from a baseline of knowledge and um, so instead of kind of going around the houses about whether what we're talking about is actually true you can sort of start talking from the point of view where it's like well the data says this so mm. what are we going to do about it so really trying to think about how we embed that in our practice and use data more as an industry because we're not a very data focused industry to make evidence-based decisions and um, not just kind of throw things on the bonfire of good intention which is what I think the industry and you know people in general have been doing a long time in, in terms of diversity and inclusion and starting up schemes thinking oh anecdotally I think the problem runs here mm-hmm. uh, without really knowing and then that doesn't work and so you try something else so really thinking about how we can use data to report on our policy and strategy um, to make things better to kind of keep long-term intervention going and useful and improve what we're doing as well as kind of advocating just for better representation and um, better behaviours really in our industry. So yeah, there's a lot of different elements and I also kind of bring my academic contacts to it. So thinking about research and how that helps to tell the stories that we're trying to tell. There's a lot of sort of partnership and just trying to connect talent to opportunities. So speaking to people, trying to be a bit of an open Mm. door into what can be a closed industry. So there's all sorts all sorts and so many things I want to ask off the back of that I mean the the first thing obviously is that it's data-led and you know you mentioned there that the industry has hitherto not been that data-led and maybe they haven't engaged with it so from your point of view how do you make data sexy basically you know how do you invite people to say you know this is something that you should be paying attention to and this is something that should be informing what you do next You'd be amazed how much people think data is sexy already. I didn't have to do much. <laughs> <good> so to <laughs> I sort of, people love numbers. And I think, uh, you know, data isn't the answer. I think uh, for a time, I think people are like, oh, if we just have the data, then we're mm. done. It's good. We're doing something. I think data is a baseline. So if I have to fill in an equality monitoring form about my, um, you know, my what ethnic group I belong to when I go to the dentist, I don't know why we don't have to fill them in in our industry to work mm. on set or, you know, I, it feels like we're a bit behind the curve or, as far as that con- that's concerned. Whereas other industries sort of have that a bit more licked. And it is because of the nature of our industry as freelance and we don't have mm. the benefit of kind of HR and policy and structures to allow for that stuff to happen. So I think that's my interest is sort of embedding that. And I think everybody realises that, that there are just questions that we cannot answer so during covid for example mm. the government was asking us well how many freelancers work in the industry and we had we have absolutely no idea so you can kind of guess that it might be around 85,000 or something but we don't we don't actually know because we don't collect that information right. so being able to to be able to do anything to change the situation you need to know what the situation is and i think people are realizing that as they go through or becoming kind of more aware of this and and wanting to do more that they need that information to be able to drive the change that they want to see so actually when you have those numbers people are fascinated because it's often the first time they're seeing them it's often new knowledge and so people love that they love new knowledge I think the difficulty after that is so that's just baseline the difficulty after that is 
what you do about that and how you make those numbers change. And I think that's the bit that I'm particularly interested in because sort of the data is just kind of like, let's just do that. That's a great idea. <laughs> this is the best way. Let's collect that. And then, and then it's like, okay, so what do we do about that? Well, let's talk about that. You know, how do you go about radicalizing an institution essentially, which is what the BFI is and it's very embedded. You know, it means a, a lot of different things to a lot of different people. As you say, it's a strange beast and it kind of covers many facets. So where do you start with, you know, you've collected the data. What do you then do with it? I wish I knew, uh, <laughs> but I, I can tell you what we are doing. I think we have, uh, as I say, we have policies and then I think it's about not just getting rid of those policies or building those policies based on ideas mm -hmm. and building them on facts. I think the data allows for you to see where the issues are. If you can see where the deficits are, and I, to be fair, we all know where the deficits are, but the data kind of helps you to, to give you a baseline to know where to move that from and what good might look like. So I think that allows you to target. And I really think the, ma the majority of what we're talking about when we're talking about changing an institution or changing, and there's sort of two different things at play, because I think there's changing the BFI as an institution, and then there's changing the industry. And, you know, BFI as an in institution does have HR. We do have policy. We do have structures where we're able to do that. And our data mm -hmm. that we publish about who we employ and who we fund those public knowledge holds us accountable for that so I think the data allows you to set the baseline hold you accountable and check whether you're actually changing things so that's what's important there and then I think in terms of what else you're doing is it's joining up everything that's so fragmented so I think it's quite a siloed mm. industry because of the freelance nature of it because there is no regulation you know the BFI are not a regulator we can't tell anybody what to do so it is about leading by example. It is about giving best practice and good advice. And it is about knowing what we don't know and what we're not good at. And I think the more collaboration there is on this issue around the industry and the more we help each other, you know, nobody's doing it right or I wouldn't be in a job, you know. And that is the dream really is that I don't have to be in this job, but people are just doing this as part of their job. And it's just, you know, embedded in everything that we do. The more kind of collaboration there is, the better. Um, and I think it is just about looking at what's broken. So I think in terms of and putting things in place, so in terms of the sort of recruitment practices, do they exist? Kind of what do they look like? Are they giving the widest amount of opportunity to people as they could be? Or are we just hiring our mates, you know, or, or trusted people that we've worked with before? Are we networking in between shoots to widen your circle to know what talent is out there? Are we crewing up? kind of equitably it's all of these questions as well as the kind of pipeline what are we doing through education you have to attack all of these areas distribution audiences mm -hmm. it's not just kind of a one one thing fixes all so I think you have to look at the entire pipeline the whole ecosystem and figure out all the little things that you could be doing in that to give one person an opportunity two people an opportunity three people an opportunity that across the board becomes an entire step change in the way that we function as an industry. I mean, obviously, we've kind of covered then the more structural goals that the BFI has. I know that they kind of set an agenda every five years where they sort of speak about that. But then I'm wondering, you know, on a personal level, what do you want to achieve in this role and in this job? You know, what do your own kind of personal goals look like? Yeah, I think for me, the the most exciting thing about my job is you can't always 
check the goals that you set in diversity and inclusion your reach mm. is bigger than you realize and um so you know we set these things up we don't always know whether somebody's using our bullying harassment guidelines on set but we you know and then read down again you find out they are and you're like oh that's great that's that's, that's really good that somebody's <laughs> utilizing that yeah or you know that they've printed off the diversity standards and that's informed how they um mm. you know tell their story so uh, it's all, but the, so the stuff that I really enjoy is when I can give access to somebody that might not have had access before, or you know, just so introducing people. And I think all of those little kind of micro connections and the time that you can give to people just by listening to their experience or maybe trying to make a change in their experience will be the difference is the stuff that I enjoy the most so I think in terms of goals I'd really like to sort of get some proper data reporting set up for the industry that would be a good thing to have achieved but yeah, it's the, it's the sort of individual, a bit like my tutoring people at university, it's the same thing, but it's the sort of individual mm. interaction or bits of information that I can give people that they might not have got otherwise. So for me, that's, that's an, it sounds so cheesy, if I can help like one person, but it's, but that's the, that's the achievement for me. It's just being able to shift people's um, individual experience and their perception of the mm. industry into maybe a slightly better one than they had before that would do me and then I guess I'm wondering as well like whether you encounter any kind of obstacles into you know in enforcing or engendering the kind of change that we're talking about here is there resistance I think there's less resistance than there was but you're talking about a societal issue so the same you know the same issues that there are in society around all of these questions are the ones that exist in our industry because people are people and you know people have their opinions and their own insecurities or fears about their work or you know whatever it is so I think there's definitely more openness to what we're talking about now than there ever has been and I think things like the Harvey Weinstein scandal um you know the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement last year those things kind of kick the door down a little bit for you to start talking about these issues and, and implementing things or kind of create moments of action and I always talk about that as like a sort of door swinging door so it kind of gets kicked open and then it slowly starts to swing closed but I think it's swinging closed a bit slower than normal at the moment so generally I think people are open and get it they get why this needs to happen and that it's a great thing to sort of have more voices around the table and that we make better stuff and mm. stories are more interesting. So I, yeah, I feel like there is less resistance than there was. And then, you know, where there is a, a where there is a lot of resistance, I kind of don't try not to waste my energy in those areas. And, and you know, because there are a hell of a lot of people that are working really hard for this and want it to happen. So, you know, I'd rather focus my efforts there. Mm. And I guess, you know, coming back to that idea of it being about the individual and the human interaction, is that sort of where the motivation comes from? Is it, you know, seeing people kind of making small inroads into the industry or just, you know, having having that energy? Because I imagine, you know, sometimes it, it could be difficult to kind of maintain that vibe of wanting to change the, the film industry. You know, how, how do you stay stay focused and engaged with the agenda? That's a really good question. Yeah, it can be really difficult. And I think because it is 
personal, you know, as a, as a, as a woman, as a woman of colour that is also working in this industry mm. and has worked, um, you know, as a human in life and understands some of those prejudices mm. and barriers that it can be kind of exhausting because when I'm talking about this stuff I'm not just talking about it as an abstract concept that I think would be nice to have you know it's about me and people like me and my friends and my peers and my family so I think it's it can be really exhausting but yeah absolutely it is those moments of connection it is those moments of things where you find out that something's working or somebody feels differently because of something done or like with the data with that black star research if that knowledge has made somebody think differently or do something differently that's incredibly powerful and that's the stuff that keeps me going is those moments of change or the change in the BAFTAs this year is really heartening um, and all the work that went into making that happen mm. I also want to talk a little bit about language, which I know you kind of raised earlier in, in, in changing the language within our industry. And I think it's it's really interesting to me that your job title is industry inclusion executive. And I'm guilty of it myself. I know that we kind of tend to blur the lines between what diversity, equity and inclusion means. And we kind of use them, you know, quite in a, in a, in a quite slippery way. But, you know, it feels important to me that your work is focused on inclusion. And I'm wondering if that difference is equally important to you. Um, and if you could speak to the kinds of questions that inclusion asks of institutions such as the BFI. Yeah, absolutely. I think diversity for me is a fact. So diversity is a thing that we are individually as we are as a nation, as we are in the world. Mm. Uh, so to talk about kind of increasing diversity seems weird because it that's it's just what we are so the reason that we are the inclusion team is really because that, that speaks to behaviors that speaks to how somebody feels mm. that speaks to um, whether somebody stays in the industry because they feel welcome and supported and challenged um in you know creatively and in a good way and able to do their best work and be their best selves so that's what inclusion means to me and equity means that you're giving people that opportunity in the way that they need it to happen. And I think language is important because it's really difficult because the language of diversity and inclusion and in terms of race and people's protected characteristics and their own identity is a very personal thing. And so you're not always going to get it right. But I think it is important to talk about what you are doing and what you are talking about. And what we are talking about is inclusion it is about taking down barriers it is mm. about people's behaviors um it is not about diversity because diversity is there already it's just about making those opportunities available to, to all of that um, amazing richness of talent that is already in the industry and is trying to get in or trying to stay in so mm. yeah I think it's I think it's really important to sort of talk about exactly what it is that you are doing and, and that income it's still not perfect but I think encompasses more of what we're talking about and again this is where data is important in terms of the numbers but that isn't all we're talking about so you could for example with the black star data you, you know initially you're sort of thinking oh well the numbers look okay but when you dig into where people are allowed to act whether they're allowed to speak you know what stereotypes are being perpetuated 
it's a completely different story and that's where the inclusion part comes into it yeah because it's, it's funny isn't it how you I don't know um these kind of questions on a surface level it can look like changes is, is happening but then yeah on a data-led level you you just find a lot of disparity like I remember reading something a while ago about speaking of awards like best supporting actress and how women of color were much more likely to be nominated in that category than they were in the leading actress category um and so on the surface level you could say well you know look Viola's up there on stage and yet it still goes to show that the roles aren't there for them to be able to get the kind of leading actress roles. And I think it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting that, that, yeah, data is such a useful tool to kind of showing the work that there still is to be done. Yeah, absolutely. And I, it, it digs deeper than the superficial. So I think if you, what was really interesting about the data is that if you ask anybody if inclusion and diversity is improving, everybody says, yeah, sure, you know, like I saw, like I saw Rayla do, I saw Eva Selber in that thing. So like, it's definitely better. And actually when you interrogate that, you sort of realize you're like, okay, so name six people, name 10, you know, like name 10 lead roles where they were not a gangster or, you know, horribly stereotyped or kind of killed in the first five minutes. So I think that, yeah absolutely helps to sort of show you the depth of work that needs to be done because we don't want um surface so I think there has been a lot of like really great work in terms of on-screen representation but then it is like well what is that representation is that just perpetuating the same stereotypes are we talking about really nuanced portrayals of of people like us you know that feel authentic and like me so the data definitely kind of helps to draw that out and and make you understand uh, the scale of the problem and coming back to the idea of inclusion and you know feeling like you belong in an environment I'm wondering on a personal level you know did that happen for you you know was there a stage where you ever felt like I don't belong here and that has changed is it still evolving and changing for you how do you feel about that word in relation to your own career I think I feel differently about that on a day-to-day basis. I think it depends what rooms you're in. You know, I yeah, I, I think that changes all the time. And there have definitely been times where I have not felt included in all stages of my career. And then other times, um, especially in sort of really good teams and, and with really good managers where I felt incredibly comfortable and supported. But that can honestly change day to day, even in my job now, just depending on kind of what room you're in or what situation you're in or, or how how you feel. So yeah, I've, I've definitely experienced that. And so I kind of know, I know how that feels on the other side. And how difficult that can be to perform well when you don't feel like you belong in, in the space that you're in. It's really important to me to kind of reduce that for people because it's it's exhausting to have to to figure that out and and change and switch and or sort of feel slightly uneasy, not really understand why you don't feel comfortable. You don't even after all these years, I don't always realise that that's what it is. You know, you sort of you come away thinking, oh, maybe I just was really underperforming or I wasn't getting my point across and then you're like oh no it's just because like people weren't listening or they weren't taking me seriously or you know and that's on many levels that's being a woman that's being relatively early in my career that's from from being a woman of color so I think on on various levels you you experience that all the time Mm. and having to navigate it can be quite exhausting and then it's interesting to me that you you kind of mentioned support and I guess managers and I know obviously mentorship is a big thing particularly with inclusion is kind of letting people see what they could be and I'm wondering if there's any people in your life that have been a mentor to you and that still you know maybe mentor you or help you and in times where you need advice 
feel like I have lots of mentors, so not like not official mentors necessarily, mm. but just people that have that I go to. I mean, I'm quite gobby anyway, so I will just sort of seek people out because <laughs> I'll be like, I need to talk about this, tell me. So I feel like I have like many unofficial mentors, including including my manager now, like JNR Head of Inclusion, who sort of really helped me at the BFI and kind of navigate my way into where I am, position that I'm in. Mm. now you know as well as and and our CEO actually Ben Roberts I think you know sort of really helped me at a time where I wasn't sure where I was going and what I wanted to do I've just had I had a great career coach for such a short amount of time but Sharon in Kotaria who's just incredible it's such a short period I think we had like three official sessions and it felt like she just absolutely turned my career around and I don't even know how she did it. It was like magic. So yeah, I just, I I really would encourage people to just reach out and talk to people because anybody can be your mentor. I find even my mentees are my mentors, you know, like the people that I help really show me so much in terms of what um, where I'm at in ter- you know like in the interactions that we're having what I can tell them because I mm. think I sometimes think I have nothing to give or tell anybody or that I don't know anything um, and so those sessions kind of really help to go oh, no, I think, yeah, I've done some stuff I've got, I've got some knowledge I know yeah. some things but also just in what they're doing and the kind of incredible like career paths they're on that will you know soon outstrip mine in like two seconds so I I really love mentoring because I feel like I learned so much from from them as well and it's a good way of looking at it, I guess is the kind of mutually beneficial relationship because often a mentee kind of figure might be afraid of reaching out thinking that they're sort of you know sucking time from someone and actually framing it as this kind of dialogue that you can both get something from I guess is yeah helpful to breaking down that barrier absolutely I just I always say I think it just doesn't have to ask if somebody's busy they just won't answer you know they they just you know you just won't if you haven't Mm. got the time and you know god god my inbox can be just horrendous so there are times where I just forget like honestly but if people have got the time or they're kind of inclined they will they'll answer even if it's a half an hour coffee you can learn so much in in that time or be introduced to someone else who might be able to help so I I just always think it's worth reaching out and I know that that can feel really difficult that can feel like quite a big thing and you don't want to feel Mm. like you're bothering people but bother people (laughs) especially in this industry you know that's how it works you people reach out and they know someone who knows someone who knows someone so you know work the system I say yeah I like that bother people (laughs) I'm also wondering if there's a moment in your career or, or a project that you've worked on that you're particularly proud of I think, God, I'm not even sure I've had it yet, but I think I, I think the Black Star Project for me was a real game changer because I'd been in such a sort of weird place after not doing my PhD and sort of not really knowing where Mm. I went. And that was the other thing I wanted to say, because I think people think about a career as being this linear thing that you start off on Mm. and then you do this and then that leads to this and that leads to this. And mine has been completely not that. And I think most a lot of people's aren't like that actually that you zigzag around and stuff happens or sometimes you're made redundant or you know something just didn't work out or wasn't what you thought it was going to be and I really feel like your career is what you look back on when you're retired like or at the end it's it's so it's really difficult to talk about my career as a thing because I'm like I don't know I just (laughs) just did this thing and then didn't finish that and then did something else but I think the Black Star project for me was a real game changer because it I really wasn't expecting to be hired by the BFI at all 
but it was such an intersect of all of my interests and I learned so much in short in such a short period of time and kind of put my own stamp on it and like you know was able to bring all of the knowledge that I had from collections and catalogues and research and you know being from the other side and as well as representation and kind of what what I wanted to learn about that and where I placed myself in kind of Britishness and all of these questions into that project and so I'm really proud of that because and I still get asked about it today because it was pretty groundbreaking actually like it mm-hmm. was it no one had done those numbers no one had crunched those numbers before so that felt like a really exciting thing and I'm yeah I'm really proud that it worked out as it did and that people were interested and learned something from it. Yeah, definitely. Such a groundbreaking piece of work. I also think we just need a new icon, don't we? Like for it not being a career ladder. I can't think of like what the the next thing Snakes would be. And ladders? Yeah. I don't know. It's a just, career yeah, snake. It's a career zigzag. <laughs> like, you know, with many potholes along the way. I just think it's quite a dangerous thing to think that it's a ladder. It's too much pressure to put on someone to think that they've just got to go from here to there and that's it. I'm also really interested in the fact that you work at the Gina Davis Institute. You're involved um, with that organisation. And I'd love to know more about what that entails. You know, what, what do you do there? So because I'd done the done that black star work and then I, I went to I went to LA and uh, decided to sort of go I was going for something else but I, I thought oh well, while I was there I'd meet people that were doing diversity reporting and data mm-hmm. just to kind of see whether I'd missed anything or if there was anything that I was doing or, or could be doing that would that would help that work and um so I met with Madeline Zanano who's the CEO of the Gina Davis Institute and we had a lovely lunch and she's amazing and so and I'd just sort of been really interested actually the Black Star work kind of came the year after the Gina Davis Institute had reported on their first project at the LFF so there was a lot of talk about that even when I started my project at kind of like emanating that response and the you know the kind of buzz that was around that information um so it's really great to go and meet madeline she's an incredible woman and a, a, a huge powerhouse and just we just kept in touch and she introduces me to loads of great people and we just um so i was kind of working with them anyway to see how i could help push their work this is what i mean about this space is I think you just have to collaborate and like work together to to make as big an impact as possible and they're always trying to make a big impact with their research and use the data to drive change and drive conversation and you know so it's totally in, in alignment with what I'm trying to do so yeah so they asked me to be their European Council lead and that's really their sort of representative in this part of the world and we just try and work together to put on events or do bits of research or pull people together in a room and have a conversation and we catch up and I let her know what's going on in this part of the world and she tells me what's happening there and it's quite it's just like a nice a nice to have it's a really nice to have to sort of be involved with their work and try and push it further because they do great things. I suppose it speaks to the value of conversations like this being you know intersectional and kind of not keeping these organizations siloed or just focused on you know their one particular niche it's sort of yeah we can all kind of help each other by sort of having transparency. Absolutely and I think it's just it really speaks to you know the way that the conversation is going around inclusion and as I as I said like diversity is a thing intersectionality is a thing like people are many different things and the intersections of those identities can affect you know or or create additional barriers to to where they want to go or what they want to do so 
you know, it's really necessary to sort of think it, you know, it's really important to be specific and it's great that they are an institute that focuses on gender, but they are also intersectional and they are really interested in um, looking at those things. So they've recently produced a research report around um, age and women to older women on screen and similarly for sort of women of colour and I think that's it's really great to be able to have those conversations and kind of draw light uh, and remind people that you are talking mm. about something that's way more complicated than fixing it for women or fixing it for black people you know like there, there are mm. so many ways infinite possibilities of the ways that you could you could try and improve things and the best way really is to to just be mindful of the complexity of people's identity. And I'm also wondering if there's something, you know, that you've learned in your career or a piece of advice that perhaps you wished a younger Melanie had known um, that you can kind of distill and share. I think it's just that you, the best is yet to come. So I think you, th- you, you come out, I think younger Mel would have, at you, if I think about me at uni and sort of thinking I needed to know where I was going, I needed a plan, I needed to know where I was going, I had to make the right step, otherwise it was all going to go horribly wrong. This goes back to the career ladder, I'm like banging on about it, but it's so true. And I think I really felt like I, I needed it all sorted and I needed to know what I was going to do and, and, and all of that kind of thing. And then, you know, ended up in the position where I was, where I was like, oh that's what I wanted to do 10 years ago I'm not sure if it's on it what I wanted to Mm. do now so I think just sort of knowing that that you can be flexible and that you can change your mind and that nothing that you do in terms of you know working somewhere or deciding to study something or you know that, that none of that is irreversible if you wanted to go and do something else and you know obviously there are financial concerns and you have to sort of think about that and people are in different positions but I really think there are ways in which to find something and it might not be the thing that you have in your head that's the thing that you want to do there are so many possibilities in terms of what jobs are out there and what skills are needed and how those skills are useful that you don't have to be fixated on sort of one route and that that stuff kind of you know you can look for other stuff where you can use your skills yeah. and that that's what jobs are about you know that, that it's about utilizing the best of yourself and I think it took me a long time to know that that actually you know emotional intelligence is a useful skill at work that being able to talk to people or empathize is a useful thing in my role now and I wouldn't necessarily have thought about that when I was 18. 100 percent. yeah I mean that hit, that hits hard I feel like at the moment I'm I'm learning that lesson you know just I I feel like when I was certainly younger and I, I guess still in a way but I always felt like if I left the film industry and maybe it's quite conceited but that, that it would disappear and that it wouldn't still be there or there wouldn't still be opportunities there you know if I decided to go away and do something else and then when I came back and you know it would have moved on without me um so yeah it's, I think it's a good lesson as you said in a way to kind of learn that you can kind of come back to it and that as you say everything that you learn is kind of always probably going to be useful absolutely and I just think as well that you're the most important thing actually so I think like as we were talking about before you know that decision to not finish the PhD at the time felt like a ridiculous you know sort of awful decision to make like what will people think you know how can I what will employers think if I haven't ever finished that like do I look like I don't finish things and actually what was most important was that I was just miserable (laughs) I was miserable and I was not enjoying myself and it wasn't what I wanted to do anymore so why would you sort of put yourself through that thinking oh this is what employers will want I think Mm. as long as you are sort of 
taking care of yourself and, you know, learning the things that you need to learn and that serve you, then employers will find that attractive. Take care of you, first of all, that's the most important thing. Natalie, thank you so much for speaking with me today. It's been a really great conversation. It's been such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. You're so welcome. I feel like we got like, you know, really deep. Thank you for downloading this episode of Best Girl Grip. You can find all my previous episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Acast. I'll be back with another episode next Tuesday, but in the meantime, have a wonderful week. Mm-hmm.